Good day, everyone. Welcome to the ESPN and the Australian Open Conference Call. At this time, I'd like to turn the conference over to Mr. Dave Nagel. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Alan. Hello, everybody. Lincoln, you missed the off-season. Early results have been intriguing, although injuries remain an issue and other absences uh, as well. Welcome back. The Australian Open starts Monday in Melbourne, the usual all-day, every-night, uh, late-night marathons from ESPN. Best action is re-aired the next afternoon. Every match is available wherever you are, live on the ESPN app, live and on demand. Uh, we have two people on the line, and I think joining uh, soon by an unexpected third. We have Chris Everett from Florida, the two-time champ down under. Patrick McEnroe, who had a career best for majors at the 91 event in Australia, reaching the semifinals. And I believe Brad Gilbert is also uh, going to join us for a short time uh, shortly. Uh, we'll go around the room, try to get to everybody. I will say who is up and who is on deck. And with that in mind, we will start in our nation's capital with Kellen Sung from the Washington Post, followed by Philip Bondi, writing for Forbes. Hello, Kellen. Hey, everyone. Happy New Year. Ooh, same Thank to you. Thank you. You too. Um, Two, two questions. First one, uh, we're, you know, Djokovic is back, but he's still not 100%, like you said. He has a, you know, I think tennis Twitter is, like, noticing his new service motion. So what do you think of that? How hard is it to come back from an from, uh, injury layoff like that and, you know, a, a new service motion? And uh, kind of not not Australian, but I know you both work with academies. And high cost this isn't anything new, but I'm you know, I'm wondering where do you guys think the sport is with that? Is tennis getting, you know, more economically diverse and uh uh you know, because I know you guys work with, you know, juniors at your academies, where do you think the sport is with that? Um, well, let me start with the uh the elbow situation and the and the serve. Um you know, obviously you don't want to go into a, your first tournament, first of all, being a major. Uh, second of all, you don't want to go into it uh, <clears throat> with a brand-new stroke of any kind. So, you know, Djokovic, I mean, we'll have to see how it looks, um, you know, in match play, number one. Uh, he has tinkered with his serve quite a bit over the years. If you remember, a number of years ago, he had some sort of serving yips when he was uh, <clears throat> still number three in the world. So he was able to iron them out and take over number one. So if there's anybody that could that could tinker with it and probably be successful, it would be him. Um, but more important than that, I think, for Djokovic is just the overall health of, um, of, of that arm and the elbow going forward. So we, we're not going to know that. I don't think he's going to know that until he gets out there in competition. Chrissy? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I... I, I agree. Whenever you have to, when you, you know you've had a certain serve or a certain swing for so long, to tweak it even a little bit, um, you know, is you don't want to do that your first tournament back in a Grand Slam tournament. You know, you want to have, like you say, you want to have a lot of matches and a lot of smaller tournaments um, to see if it if it's going to really improve your serve and if it's going to really help your the elbow um you know it's going to be i mean he's he's a big question mark i mean obviously he's a big question mark he needs to play a couple of is he's playing a couple exhibitions and 
Um, but, you know, then you get to a place where you have to play seven matches in a row in the course of two weeks, and that's a whole different story. That's that's really testing the elbow to the highest level. And um, so I think it, I, I don't, I think we can only speculate at this time, you know, what's going to happen with him. You know, he's in, in great shape off season. He is one of the hardest workers ever. You know that physically he's got to be in great shape, but the question mark again um, is going to be how the elbow is going to hold up. And you talked about, you know, the, the tennis is a lot different now. You know, the, the body, there are a lot of injuries out there. The players are getting more injured. Um, the whole, mechanics of the game are different the grips the stances uh the swings the spin there's a lot more open stance now you don't really have a lot of time to turn uh or rotate and so therefore you're you're sort of using your arm and your wrist a little bit more um it's just not not as efficient it's just it's i mean i think it it's uh a whole new different game from when Patrick and I were playing in, in our era. And I was even years ahead of him in our era that we, we didn't see this, this many injuries, but I think it's just because the new equipment and the faster, you know, the faster courts, the faster balls and not faster courts, but faster, the, the balls are different. And I think that it just, the, it's really changed the mechanics of, uh, of tennis right now. Right. And yeah, sorry, just a little off, off, off topic, but what you, you both work with academies. Where, where is this sport in terms of its economic diversity in, in, in junior tennis? And is the cost still, you know, very prohibitive in preventing some players from, from, you know, excelling the sport? You know, definitely a challenge. I mean, there's no doubt about yeah. it. Obviously, it depends on what part of the country you're in, you know, for Christie and for people in Florida – you know, there's more courts, there's more outdoor, obviously, play in New York, where I am, or at least in New York City area. Uh, it's definitely more, I would say, more challenging court-wise just to be able to, to pay for courts and build courts and all those kinds of things. So, But I think, to your, to your overall point, I think what you're getting at is, um, and you can, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but <clears throat> I think, generally speaking, it, it sort of ties in a little bit to what, Chrissy was saying, which is that the game is becoming much more difficult, much more demanding to get really, really good at. Um, and I think that's the case for juniors as well. So, you know, the physical side of it is, <clears throat> is important at the pro level, but it's, it's more important now at the junior level too. So I think the whole thing is not just the economics of it, which are certainly challenging, um, but also, you know, and that doesn't mean just the ability to play and take lessons, et cetera, but to travel, to go to tournaments, to compete, yeah. you know, all those things cost money, uh, but also just to, you know, to take care of the kids as best you can to give them the best chance because the kids are putting more uh, pressure on themselves, like their bodies, uh, than they did Ooh. when we grew up with wood rackets. So um, <clears throat> you combine all those things together, and I think the point is is that, Tennis is a great game, and it's an awesome game, and, but it's, it's, there's no secret that it's very difficult to get very, very good at it, and it takes a lot of time and effort and uh, financial resources, no doubt. But I think, I think it's improved greatly. I agree with, with Patrick. I think um, more and more economically challenged kids are being exposed and are playing uh, junior tournaments now, and 
Um, I think that the USDA, for instance, has a lot, has a, quite a few. I know my dad. There's a, a, a fund uh, under my dad's name, Jimmy Everett, and I know Sloan Stevens has a fund in Compton, and you know more and more mm-hmm. programs are popping up to help um, the economically challenged players. And but I think they're exposed much more. I go to a lot of junior tournaments, and I see um, a lot of these kids and and. There are a lot of not only programs, but there are a lot of, um, you know, sort of uh, you don't have to come up from an academy, in other words. I mean, there are a a lot of public courts that are, you know, giving a lot of help to to these young kids. And 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 by the way, you know, and Patrick, I'm sure it's the same with the John Macro Academy. If you know, if when people come by all the time, people come by all the time that financially can't afford to pay a yearly, you know, fee for our academy because it's, you know, room and board and it's food and it's uh, schooling and education, all this. And it, it is hefty, but they come by and they show us that their kids will play. We'll let, we'll let them play and we'll put them in our afternoon program where we have matches with our academy kids. So I think more and more academies are doing that, are, are being a little more inclusive um, of those types of economically challenged kids. I mean, we do we do both here, as Chrissy knows, and Chrissy has been kind enough to uh, come to our event in the summer where we specifically raise money for kids that can't afford to come to our academy. And so we have a whole fund a funding uh, structure that kids that can't afford to pay can come on a scholarship. So that, like Chrissy said, that happens down at her place. That happens at our place. So it's really a combination of us in the tennis community working together with the, with, you know, whether you get some funding from the USDA or you don't, you raise it on your own. uh, And you also have paying customers, you know, that pay um, for the, for, you know, to come and and, and be in your program. So you need a mix of both. Um, yeah. And we're luck- yeah. we're lucky enough to have, you know, the ability to do that here, but we'd certainly love to do more, you know, but uh, it's expensive yeah. to run a tennis facility and it's expensive to, uh, you know, keep the lights on and the, especially the heat the last couple of weeks um, yeah. and to keep all the pros in business. So it's a, but it's a good, you know, we've got a pretty good balance. So if you came to our Academy where I just pulled into today, um, this afternoon, you, you, you'd see quite a diverse background of kids some of whom are paying, some of whom are not. Um, and that's sort of the model that I think a lot of us are going by to try to get as many people the opportunity to play and play at a high level. Thanks so much. All right, we move on. Philip Bondi with Forbes and then from Reuters, Rory Carroll. Um, hi, guys. Uh, just a couple questions. Uh, first of all, Dave made mention of this. You know, here we go again already. Uh, tennis spreads tennis spreads its uh, majors out over eight months. Golf spreads its golf sticks all of its majors within four months of each other. I just wondered if you uh, had an opinion about which sport has it right or at least better in that regard. Well, I mean, I think you look at tennis and you, you can pretty much say the French Wimbledon, the U.S. Open are are tied together pretty closely. Um, I think that tennis again is a more, I mean, is is a more physical sport um, than golf. So I think it, 
I think golf can do that a, a lot more successfully. Um, I like it being spread over the whole year. I don't like it being um, in one clump. Um, so I, I, I think tennis has the better has the better formula, has the better schedule right now. Yeah, I would agree. Philip. Other, I think, yeah. I, sorry. Yeah, sorry, Chrissy. I would I would agree. I mean, I think tennis, uh, <clears throat> golf, maybe, maybe, and I say that uh, you know a big question mark. Maybe uh, somewhat more popular here in the U.S. on on TV, et cetera. Uh, but I would certainly argue that tennis worldwide is is bigger than golf. At least if you go to you know South America, you know Europe, the, Asia, the rest of the world. I think tennis is a little more global than golf. Although golf is certainly you know with Tiger, who you know is obviously pretty popular. But I think in Europe, tennis is is much bigger than golf um, in in Europe. So I think that there's a balance there. And obviously, if you go to Australia now, as we're about to do, you know, it's the middle of their summer, it's the end of their summer, so you have to take that into account. But we've always had this argument, you know, for years and years, for 50 years about tennis, you know, that the season is too long. And I think you're seeing now from the top players in tennis, uh, Federer and Serena, et cetera, Venus Williams, that um, you, it's up to you as an individual to manage it. And if you... Okay. Um, uh, the, my, my other question. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, oh my other question uh, to you is that I don't remember a situation where we've had so many of the top-ranked, top-seeded, top-ranked women who have never won a major. Um, I just wondered what your take was on that and how you think that, how that how that has come about besides Serena obviously uh and whether that's going to be a factor in this in the Australian Open well i think one of the reasons why is because Serena's won 23 you know <laughs> I mean, I right no i know that's a factor yeah i mean i think that's a, a very important factor is that she has dominated for so many years um but yeah you're right it, it is interesting um, there's an abundance of talent out there. I mean, the one, yes, we have nobody besides Serena who has taken the bull by the horns and, and you know, since Serena's been out of the game and continued or started her own um, dominance. But on the other side of the coin, you've got, it's, in, it's probably more intriguing because you've got 20 players on the day to win a grand slam. And, Certainly, you couldn't have said that 10 years ago or even five years ago. So, um, I mean, to look at some of these, you know, to look at some of these players who who are capable of winning it, it really goes down to, you know, Sybil Kovac is 26 in the world, Rod Wanska is 28 in the world, Petra Kvitova is 29 in the world. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. The, the depth and, you know, the fact that they're – the talent – is plentiful right now, so that's what we have to celebrate. We, you know, we we no longer have a dominant player. This is a new look at women at women's tennis. This is the way it is right now. We'll see when Serena comes back. It might be a different story, but for right now, this is a, a different look, and everyone has to make you know adjustments in their thought process when you know when they and their enthusiasm when they watch women's tennis. And it is intriguing. Before it wasn't. We knew and we respected the brilliance of Serena, and we we hailed her. 
but right now um, there's just so much talent out there that it's uh, to me I could you know if you were to ask me to pick a player to win Australian Open, which I hope you don't, because I have no idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, thanks so much. All right. All right, Phil, thank you. And uh, now Rory Carroll at Reuters, then John Houston from Inside Tennis. Hi, thanks very much for taking my question. Um, And I've just got to ask, Chrissy, who do you think is going to win on the women's side? (laughs) Yeah, thank you. uh, But but more to – my real question is, um, what emerging players uh, do you think people should be looking at uh, who has a real shot to go deep into this tournament that's maybe uh, not a household name that could become one on both the women's and the men's side. And then, yes, so, you know, overall, who do you think got the best shot on on both uh-huh. sides of, of making the final and perhaps, uh, perhaps taking it? You know, I'm, I'm, there's no, um, I, I, I say this without a lot of conviction, um, but I, I say this because I feel like Simona Halep um, had such a disappointing 2017 in the, in the majors. And I feel that she is determined to turn that around. And, mm. uh, you know, I think that, I mean, she had a heartbreaking 2017 in, in all the majors. And I just feel like she's playing the best tennis right now, playing the most solid tennis. I think she had good training, in the fall, she with with every interview that I see, every time I see her on TV or Twitter, she has a big smile on her face. So I think she's in a good, you know, personally a good frame of mind, and she's she's um, she's liking being number one. You know, she's enjoying that. She's embracing it. She's not fearful of it. So I say that with again without 100% conviction, but I I'm going to have to you know pick her as my favorite. Um, as mm. far as the young players that's wow i mean you've um looking down the the rankings here Svitolina, you can never count i know she's not necessarily the younger but Svitolina is she's she's sneaking in there um ostapenko Mm -hmm. definitely she was not a flash in the pan she's one that's gonna she's one to stay um Mm -hmm. Let's see here. How about Madison? What about Madison Keys, Chrissy? Yeah, Madison. Well, I'm 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 at twelve, thirteen, fourteen. I'm kind of going down the rankings now, but okay. Madison. Um, I'm always I'm Patrick, as you know, I always choose Madison to to do well and, and deep into the majors. So definitely. Well, she came out of your she came out of your academy, so you should. Yeah, well, that, I don't know if I. I wouldn't do it only because she came out of my academy. <laughs> I do, you know. She's got that. Well, you yeah. know, she's got she's got the the power that ma- that is. I think matches Serena and Venus, and I think we haven't really seen a player in a while that has matched that power. Um, you know, I'm looking down here. Uh, your Kazakina Gavrilova. They're always also young, good ones to watch. Um, I'll tell you, Chrissy. I, you know, it, yeah, to, 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 excuse me, interrupting, but to, to, go, to, go. to go back to, to to go back to golf a little bit. Women's tennis at a major reminds me of like a, a male golf major, and you could yeah. make the art. You know, the twenty, thirty people, maybe more, could win it. So it's a it is a unique yeah. time because it, we're so used to the women's tour being dominated by a couple of players. 
Now we're certainly been used to that on the men's side in the last you know decade or so. But uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, the women's side is completely wide open, and uh, you can make a case for multiple players and have a chance to win it. Yeah. Mm. I, was thought, I was looking at, um, where's Asaka? Where's she? Where's her ranking? Oh, Naomi. She's down to 70. Well, I kind of, you know, I, I, like, I like the way she plays. Um, anyway, so I gave you a few names anyway to look at. But, I, you know, I'm again, it's, I, everybody has a story. That's what's making it interesting and intriguing because everybody from Pliskova to Ostapenko to Caroline Garcia, you know, she finished up a great year. What was the year? I think would make a lot of people happy if she won uh, her first Grand Slam. So there's just a lot of talent. And um, it, it, it's even, you know, I said that last year when Serena wasn't playing, but I, it's doubled this year. Mm, great. And on the men's side, uh, Patrick, any names? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, I tell you, it's hard. To, it's amazing that, you know, you turn on the TV and I, and I watch the Hopman Cup and I see Federer and I just think, like, how does this – it's just amazing. He just keeps doing He looks, like, younger than ever. He's moving, you know, as beautifully as ever, hitting the ball brilliantly, you know, wins whatever it was, four or five matches at the Hopman Cup against – you know, high-level competition. And so, to me, he's the clear favorite. I mean, you got Rafa's got some injury problems. Obviously, Djokovic is a major question mark as far as where he is. And, you know, the other guys are guys that haven't broken through. Stan is a huge question mark coming off the injury, Ravrinka. And so then you look at, well, could it be a Dimitrov or a GoFan? And, you know, some of those guys are Zverev. Is he ready to step up? And, uh, I, I, I got to tell you, I don't, I don't see anybody that I think right now, if they're playing Roger in, in the semis or the finals of a major, I'm going to bet. Now, maybe he, you know, he could always get picked off early, and then it becomes a little more wide open. But based on what I've seen so far and sort of what we saw not just last year, but even the tail end of last year, uh, I don't think it's, it's, it, there's anybody else that you could say is a favorite other than Roger at the moment. Wow, that's great. I think uh, think Kyrgios is going to be dangerous. He's going to be dangerous. And he has the mind, I think, now. uh, He's not intimidated with the top players. I think he's – got to give him um, a shout-out. Do you mean dangerous to himself or dangerous to the tournament? Mm, Dangerous for a bit. He could could upset any of those – you know, he's 17 in the world, but he could upset any of those guys on a given day. Yeah. uh, and you no, know, the I, problem I, for him is that he I, could get upset by anybody too. That's the problem. True, true. I'm just, you know what? We didn't name any dangerous floaters. I was just naming him. That's all. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right, we will and move I, on now yeah, to um, to John Houston from Inside Tennis, and then Peter Bodo from ESPN.com. Hello, everyone. Thanks. Um, Patrick, sort of continuing on from what you were just saying, I wanted to ask a little bit about what makes Federer Federer, um, especially in relation to the injuries, the spate of injuries on the men's side with Murray out, Nishikori out, Warinka questionable, Djokovic and Nadal rebounding. And then um, my second question was just about on the women's side, we've got Sloan 
uh, sort of slumping right now, um, really slumping. And I wanted to ask a little bit about um, with the reduction to 16 seeds, what what um, do you see maybe happening in terms of upsets? I know there's like a player like Gerges coming in with like three tournament wins in a row, I think. So those are the two questions. Why don't you start, Chrissy? Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um well, I'll, I'll just comment quickly on Federer. I think that um, this is a guy who's so relaxed. Um, this is a guy who, because he's so relaxed, and he, I think that that affects him mentally as well as physically. Um, the way he plays in a relaxed way, there's no strain. He doesn't muscle anything. He kind of glides around. I think just he's so efficient, and he's just, uh, the way he plays his style, I think that uh, it just um, doesn't result in a lot of injuries. And I think mentally and emotionally, I think having kids, having a family, getting away, he gets away from the game. He knows how to compartmentalize really well, and he lets the losses just roll off his back. I just, I think there's just no tension there, and I think he has a real joy for the game still. And that's that. That's what makes Federer Federer. Um, as far as the other question, Sloan, I don't know what's going on with Sloan. Um, you know, I know she was doing a lot of this fall. She was injured still. I think she's still injured or she was nursing um, an injury. And she, I don't believe, has even has she even won a match since the U.S. Open? I don't even think she's no. won. I should look into that, no? no. Um, so, I mean, this is the jinx that any play, surprise winner of a Grand Slam seems to have had. If you look at past history, you look at all the, the players who um, have won it for the first time who weren't expected to win it. It's um, it's sort of like it changes your whole life, and I think she's had a lot more demands, and she's been doing more you know, press, and she's been making more appearances, and she's been doing a lot of her charity work, which I, uh, I, I have to you know, compliment her for. She does have a, a program in Compton, California, and she helps a lot of kids there. So that plus the fact that, you know, she has been injured and her body hasn't been 100%, I think it's it's taken her, it, it's taken a toll. Um, I, I think that she's, you know, I don't think that Sloan is a real intense um, kind of player anyway. I think she's kind of a relaxed player when she goes out there and you know, I don't. I, I I question whether she has a burning desire to win more Grand Slams or to be number one in the world. Or you know, I, I don't. I don't see that burning desire as much um, as I see it with other players. So I'm sure that that's just my opinion. But maybe I'm wrong. But that's just um, what I'm seeing with her. Thank you. Uh, well, I'll just follow up on on Roger, which is uh, obviously. Everything Chrissy said is 100% true, um, and the only Phew. thing to add is to, add to, to that is, uh, I mean, we got to appreciate. Let's just continue to appreciate this guy because the fact that he's still able to play at this level is, I mean, quite frankly, I think it's just one of the most amazing feats I've ever seen, you know, in any mm-hmm. sport, and and not just to, you know, Sampras, you know, won Wimbledon, won the U.S. Open, and 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 walked away. But, you know, he wasn't, up until that time, he, he, was, he wasn't even in contention at a major for a while. You know, and he just, you know, got lightning in a bottle for two weeks, and, you know, God bless him, he was an all-time, is an all-time great. 
but Federer is just a guy's always there. And, uh, and I think we, you know, he's got a God given gift, um, to what he does, but he's also been extremely smart about taking care of himself. And what he does with his training doesn't get spoken about a lot, but he works his butt off and he's changed the way he's trained in the last five or six years to give himself more longevity. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't want people talking about it because we all watch him and we think, oh, the guy's just, you know, it's so easy for him. Well, that's partly true, but it's also true that he's really mastered how to pace himself, take care of himself train for tennis in a way that uh, is absolutely brilliant uh, and also train his body and his mind. And I also think what Chrissy said that he, I, w- I was always amazed when he was in his prime or even when Djokovic and Nadal started to overtake him a little bit, how he sort of brushed off losses. Cause I was thinking, Oh man, this guy's going down. I mean, he's never, he's yeah. never going to get back to number one, you know? And he basically just was like, yeah, it's no big deal. I lost and I'm, uh, you know, I'm getting ready for the next yeah. tournament. Even even at the U.S. Open this year, when he lost, the first thing he said in the press conference was, I can't wait to get, you know, 100% healthy so I can go to Shanghai early and be ready to win the tournament in Shanghai. And lo and behold, that's exactly what he did. You know, and it's just incredible. So let's just continue to appreciate what he does. Thank you. Um, Just a quick follow-up. What impact do you see the... uh, 16 seed um, aspect of the tournament um, having, do you think that there's going to be a lot more upsets happening on either side, or what would you expect there? I would expect more upsets, yeah. I, I would definitely expect more upsets, and it's just the luck, kind of the luck of the draw, you know. <laughs> it's, you're going to have a luck, you're going to have a good draw, or you're going to have a bad draw, and, and, I, and yeah, I mean, definitely it puts you on guard as a top 16 seed. You're on you're on guard right from the first match, right from the go. You're not going to have any matches. You know, nor, sometimes you have a match to you know play yourself, play your way into the tournament. But um, this, I mean, you could you could play the you know you could play the 17th player in the world in the first round. So obviously, it's um, uh, you got to get have your guard up. You got to be ready for anything. And yes, it will create more upsets. Um, but I think it's going to make for more interesting matches. Also, the first few rounds, for sure, and more interest in, and uh, from spectator-wise. So that's you know that's a good part of it. Thank you. I think it's going to make it really much more exciting in, in week one, you know, and yeah. and, uh, and way more interesting because I do think that in the majors, for the top, you know, the the first week in a lot of these big tournaments. Quite frankly, a lot of the top players aren't pushed at all, you know, and you get a snooze fest. So I think that uh, this will help on, uh, for both because there's more depth in the men's and the women's game. Thanks a lot. All right, next up is Pete Bodo right here at ESPN and then Richard Pagliaro from Tennis Now. Uh, hey, guys, you just covered some of this, but I'm, I'm thinking about Federer's longevity and what might be, the, what might be the, the main keys to it, you know, physical and mental. I don't know if there's anything to add on that, but I wonder, also, have either of you um, had any interaction with Pierre Paganini? He's, he's kind of an interesting, almost an unknown figure to, to, to the vast majority of people in and around tennis, yet clearly he seems to have a, a massive influence on Roger. Well, I don't, I don't know him. I don't, yeah, I don't know him personally, Peter, that well. Um, uh, 
But, uh, you know, I did see that, you know, I thought it was a great, I think it was Chris, Chris Clary, was it, who had a piece in the Times about mm-hmm. it, yeah. maybe yeah. around the Open. Yeah. Um, so, you know, clearly the guy knows what he's doing. Um, but, you know, he could have done that with, with uh, you know, someone like me, and it wouldn't have mattered, right? So, but the fact is he's got Federer, who's, who's an absolute genius when it comes to how he plays tennis. Um, but, again, I think that Roger, in the last five, six years, has really changed his whole uh, regimen. And if you watch that, you know, thing he put out on his, his YouTube or Periscope or whoever it was around this time last year before the Australian Open – I thought that was very interesting to see the way he was training, um, you know, doing exercises, doing a lot of agility exercises, and then going right and playing points or, you know, doing drills on the court and mixing it up. I thought that was really interesting. I, I, I know I learned a lot from watching what he did there as far as trying to help, you know, young kids and what they do. So um, I think Rogers, you know, been ahead of the curve, and I think Pierre certainly has had something to do with it. Uh, but when I was at the Labor Cup, you know, as a, as a, uh, a coach, along with my brother, who was the captain for the team there, I tell you, it was amazing to see both Federer and Nadal, how professional they are, how meticulous they are, how dedicated they are to making sure that they're ready to go when they go out on the court. I mean, they're not like walking. I mean, they've, they've gone through a whole regimen that entire day leading up to that what time they step out on the court, which I found to be, you know, incredibly impressive, but also a part of why they're two of the greatest players of all time and why they're still at the top in their 30s. You know, I see you mentioned the doll. I see that both those players have, Nadal and Federer, they have an uncanny um, amount of motivation still in them. And I, I think when I look at Nadal, he's just, he just, he's like a boxer. He just, he wants to go out there and compete. He's so hungry to compete. And I look at Federer and I see that he's so hungry just to play, play the game of tennis. Cause he's, it's a thing of beauty and he just loves everything connected with tennis, he loves the game itself. He loves the um, the traveling. He likes loves everything that goes along with it. And I think that has kept him in the game longer. Because you always hear players complain about, you know, oh, I just, you know, want to be in one place, and that's, you know, or I'm, I'm burned out. He he doesn't burn himself out mentally because he knows how to compartmentalize and because he can get away from the game and live a normal life with his family and. Certainly, as as Patrick said, Patrick knows a lot more about the, the changes he's made in his in his fitness. But it just seems to me that he has. Uh, you're right; he's he's totally changed it around. But again, to make it fun, you know, for himself and and to make it interesting and engaging. And and there's nothing burned out about Roger Feather. He just he looks like he just like has had another life in him in the last year, and he just wants to go another four or five years. It's just incredible. There's never been anybody like him with that attitude, as far as I know, in any sport. And does it, do you think his style makes it much easier to have, for him to have longevity over, say, you know, an adult clearly who plays so, so much more muscular style and all the slicing and these and yeah. novelties? Absolutely. I think that that is game style and just the way his body is 
and the you know his just the way he plays again as i said before there's just it's it's so much timing and it's there's no muscling and no stress and no strain in in his game and he moves naturally he's got the fast twitch muscles so he moves so he glides across the course so yeah i mean bottle his body has been, is a gift you know his body's been has really helped him with his longevity and his style and that's i think translated into a certain style of play that he's had to play he's played shorter points than most players patrick i'm sorry you go ahead no, no, you're you're 100 percent right. I mean, you go watch Federer. You know, even though watching him at the Hopman Cup, it's like you know he comes out first game in the match against Zerb. You know, the mat, the game is over in 58 58 seconds. You know, so he doesn't have to punish himself in the same way, and he can just you know take shots at the ball. And uh, there's no doubt that that's helped him a lot. And I think you're seeing, um, you know, Djokovic. You hope that he can get back, but you know, Murray. You know, I think he's a huge question mark for how he moves forward. He's he's put his body through through a lot, and uh, Roger just keeps on keeps on going. Thank you, guys. All right, next up, Richard Pagliaro of Tennis Now, and then Barry Janoff in New York at SportsJournalism.com. Hi, thanks for doing the call. It's it's really great. Uh, I just had two quick questions. First, to pick up on what you were just talking about, Rafa. You know, he did look hobbled in London, the Gofan match. What do you expect for Rafa this tournament and this year? And then, if you had to pick an American man and American woman to go deepest in Melbourne, and just an American man and American woman to break through and win a major, who would you pick for the year? Well, let me start, Richard. Uh, Happy yeah. New Year to you, too. Um, I think that uh, – um, let me go with the Americans first. I mean, I think Sox got the best chance on the men's side. I think that was a huge breakthrough for him, you know, what he did the last month of the season, uh, notwithstanding that he did not look good in, in Auckland. But I think uh, I wouldn't read too much into that. So I think he's – you know, I, I was really impressed with how he looked that last – month of the year and how well he acquitted himself in, in London. As far as the women go, I think it's clearly, well, not maybe not clearly, but I'm going to say Madison Keys. I mean, Sloan has won, has won the Open. Coco certainly had a great year last year. Uh, but if I had to pick uh, one on the women's side, other than players that have already won it, I would go with Madison Keys. 100% agree with those and two. And the first part, Richard, was about uh, Rafa. Yes. What do you think for him for this tournament and just this whole season? Because he didn't he didn't look right in London, you know, and he he looked he just didn't look right. Well, he wasn't right in London, but he that's traditionally the time that he does. You know, those courts kind of beat up your your legs if you're if you really you know he plays as as Peter was talking about very physically. So he's never done that well indoors, and he's, his body's never uh, done well indoors. You know, so I don't that to me, wasn't a huge concern. Um, look, he could go the distance. There's no doubt at the Australian if he's healthy. But obviously that's a, that's a bit of an if. I haven't seen him. I just saw him hitting a little bit at, at Melbourne Park, so I haven't seen him in a competitive environment yet. But my, my feeling is that if he's there and he's, you know, he answers the bell come Monday or Tuesday that he believes he can, he can go all the way. I don't think he'd be playing if he didn't think that he could be a factor. Um, he's not going to play to win a couple of matches. So, and I expect him to be right there near the top the entire year. 
I don't see any reason to think why he's not going to dominate uh, on the clay again. And he had a, you know, an excellent season on hard courts all of last year as well. All right, next up is Barry Janoff at New York Sports Journalism, and then we will head overseas. Um, Matt Lambert at the Daily Mail in the U.K. Hey, guys, thanks for taking the time. Um, you were speaking before about growing the sport among young athletes. What would you like to see happen, or what um, do you think needs to happen to grow it among casual and non-fans and also maybe attract more non-endemic sponsors to pump some money into the game? <laughs> bringing young kids um, into the game I think a great thing was done when they brought in short tennis and because I think one of the problems has been um, young tennis players don't have not, have not felt the success you know when you're five or six or seven years old and you're just you can barely get two balls three balls in the court um, you, you know, you haven't felt really good about yourself. And I think that in other sports, obviously, they've made some drastic changes, um, lower hoops and smaller soccer fields. And so for them to shorten the court, it's, shorten the sport. In tennis, I think, um, I think has brought in a lot of new, new kids. And we, so we had to change that whole philosophy of, um, by using, you know, smaller equipment to suit the kids. Um, you know, again, I see more and more programs, public programs coming up, um, at the public tennis courts. I see it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. It it really is tough because I think that the seventies boom, you know, there were, there weren't that many sports to choose from. And, and I, and I just think tennis is at a disadvantage because I think a lot of kids like the team sports. So maybe, maybe to make it more of a team sport at a young age, you know, maybe to have team competitions, I don't know, you know, but it just seems that, that soccer and basketball and all these team sports are, are really getting our young kids now um, because they love the camaraderie. They, they, it's, to them, it's not as much pressure. They love being with their friends. And uh, tennis is a tough sport um, at a young age. You're all alone on the court, and you're competing by yourself. And, and, I mean, I know that clinics are a lot of fun, but once you get into a match, it's just it's a different situation. And not everybody, not every young kid is cut out for that pressure. So I, I probably didn't answer your question, but maybe make it, maybe make well, I mean, it more that fun. That would turn them would then turn them into long term fans if they're enjoying the sport more. Well, I think yeah. I mean, I think that uh, the long term fan issue is an interesting one. I think really, honestly, we need more American men at the t- you know close to the top uh, because you've got unbelievable players and personalities in men's tennis at the top, um, but we haven't had an American there for a while. And obviously, on the women, we've got you know, the greatest player of all time in Serena and, and Venus, yeah. who's an all-time great. And uh, I think you see in, you know, the young African-American women that have come into the game because of them. You know, I see it here at our academy. You know, we have a lot more African-American girls playing tennis than we do boys. And I think a big part of that are, are Serena and Venus. Another big part is what uh, Chrissy talked about is that tennis is uh, – 
you know, it can be maybe a more attractive sport for young women, for young girls, because they're, they're you know, not um, as many options as there are for young boys. Uh, so, but I totally agree with Chrissy that the team part of it is huge. You know, I was able to, I spent time at a lot of the junior tournaments and I went to one this summer, which is, well, it was a team event and all the kids absolutely had the best time ever. They're all kids that were between 10, 11 and 12. And these are all, you know, really high level junior tennis players and they absolutely love that part of it. So I think we need to try to keep that going as the kids get older because it tends to drop out uh, as the kids get a little bit older. And I think that's where we lose the casual, more casual tennis players and fans is because there's, unless you're playing a really high-level tennis, um, there's not necessarily another place where you can go, whether a high school tennis can be popular in some parts of the country. But um, I think that having more team events for our kids would be very beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, Patrick. When I've been to junior tournaments, um, it's just not the same. Like in my day, it was a little more casual and carefree. But um, I go to junior tournaments now, and I look at these kids and their eyes, and I look at their bodies, language, and everything. And there's, there's nobody looks happy. I mean, they're stressed out. They're upset. They have anxiety. I mean, very few of them look like they're really having a good time out there. <laughs> And I'm like, whoa, you know, you just, for for these young players, it's like you want more for them. You want them to feel the joy. You want them to be excited. Um, but I'm telling you, 80% of them are, they look like they're having no fun whatsoever. And I think in a, a team situation, I think that it would just be completely different, you know, if that was the case. And, and so that's, let's just put, yeah, let's make some more junior team events. That's, I think that's a good uh, solution there. All right, now. Okay, thank you. What's that? Have a good, have a good open. Thank, oh, thank you. Thank you. And now, uh, despite Andy Murray's injury, we go to Matt Lambert from the Daily Mail and Stuart Fisher after that from the Glasgow Herald. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for doing the call. Happy New Year. Um, well, on, on Murray. Oh, yeah. uh, He's had his surgery now. How how would you assess his chances of, of getting back to the top level and and how realistic do you think his his time scale is of, of getting back in time for the grass season? I'm not a doctor, so I don't I mean I'm I I would imagine you know, I mean that's like that's a tough question to answer because, you know, medically we don't know. I, I, unless it's been printed, I, I don't know the the extent. I mean, there's hip surgery and then there's hip surgery. You know, what I'm saying there's the, I don't I don't. My, I have a sister had hip surgery, by the way, and her first hip surgery she took like two months. She was good as new, and then the next one, six months, she was good. So I, don't, I really don't know. But um, if anybody's going to have incentive to get himself into shape, and and uh, it's going to be Andy Murray for Wimbledon. So I wouldn't I. I would predict, I would say that he is going to be ready for Wimbledon. And um, I'm hoping the hip surgery was not, they didn't find a lot of bad stuff there because I know that they've come a long way with hip surgeries nowadays and they can, you know, you can be up and about in, in six weeks and doing some exercises. So I don't think Wimbledon, I mean, I'm, again, we're not doctors. Patrick, are you a doctor? Do you know? Uh, last time I checked, no, I'm just a doctor of tennis, <laughs> that's all. 
Uh, it would be great to have him back. Let's, let's put it that way. And I think on the grass, it would be nice to come back because it is obviously going to be gentler um, on his body. But um, what, what is that? January, February, March, April, May, June. That's a good six months. And I, I think he can do it. I think, unfortunately, I mean, I'm not optimistic only because of the, you know, what the, what I know about hip surgeries and tennis players, you know. So that's uh, Gustavo Kirten, you know, Magnus Norman, players like that that have had hip surgeries. And, um, you know, Sarge Sargisian, I mean, there's a thing that I know that I remember that had a hip surgery and came back 100%. You know, a hip is really, really tough for a tennis player. So, as, but as Chrissy said, we're not doctors. Uh, we uh, certainly wish Andy nothing but the best that he can come back um, because he deserves it. I mean, the guy's worked as hard as anybody to get to number one and to do what he did. But I think, quite frankly, it took its toll on him because he's not, you know, he, he nor anyone else is Roger Federer, that they could do what he's been able to do effortlessly, some, it, it seems, appears, as far as the, the toll on the body. So, I think Andy worked himself literally to the bone to get to that point, and uh, yeah. I just hope I just hope that he has a chance to come back. I really do. Well, you know what? Maybe he's going to take a page out of Roger's book and you know change his whole philosophy on training and shorten the points and do some more off court. You don't need to be on the court as much. Do more off court training and strengthening. And and you're right. I mean, if anybody's beaten his body to a pulp over the years it's it's Andy Murray and that that definitely has to change that that whole mindset if he wants to come back successfully and have more years longevity all right next up Stuart Fisher at the Glasgow Herald and then with uh, last year's launch of ESPN India where tennis is very popular we will finish up with uh, three folks from there starting with Rohan Alvarez from the Times Stuart Hi, hi, Dave. Hi, guys. Thanks a lot for doing it. Um, Matt, again, has uh, stolen a bit of my thunder on Andy. Um, I was just wondering, you know, is, is there anything technical? I mean, you, you mentioned maybe, you know, the, the way he practices might be different. Is there anything technically he can do in the way that Roger did in terms of shortening the points? Is there anything that is that basically the blue Andy would have to look for potentially and, you know, when he comes back to kind of maximize his chances in the slams? Can can he can he start taking every ball on the rise and uh, serving and volleying like Federer? If he could do that, unfortunately, there's only one Federer. So, um, you know, maybe he can start to try to be more aggressive with his forehand, like Lendl had him doing, and trying to take the ball earlier with the backhand. He's always been a really good volleyer, but he's never really come to net that much. But the short answer is, I think that's going to be real difficult. But um, he certainly got a tremendous amount of tennis ability, so that's going to be something he's going to have to think about. You know, how much if, if he if he tries to do that? That's a great question. Yeah, I, and I think that he will do that. I think he, and I'm not saying again he's going to serve volley or do any of that, but there are so many times when you watch him play that he is waiting for his opponent to make the mistake. You know, he's a great counter puncher. But there, there. I mean, sometimes when I watch him play, I wonder why he hasn't ended the point before. You know, he extends yeah. the points a little longer than he needs to, and maybe this is a blessing in disguise. Maybe this will force him to reevaluate that and 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 play with a little more aggression and and put a little more pressure on his opponent, and that might result in shorter points. Um, 
But I think we're going to definitely see that. And it's a tweak. It's definitely a tweak that he's going to have to do. To do. Uh, Dave, this is Patrick. I'm going to have to yeah. jump off because I have to teach a young kid uh, how to play tennis right now. Okay, So i got to go on the court. Well, well as we've been discussing, that's important. If, if anybody okay. needs to talk to me, I can talk to him later on today. No problem. Thank you so much. Thank you, Patrick. Bye, Pat. All right, let's uh, let's see if we can finish up here with uh, Chrissy, and we'll start with Rohan Alvarez at the Times of India, and then uh, I'm going to butcher some names here. Deepak Raghav from the Hindu. Okay, hi guys, uh, Rohan here. Uh, pleasure to be a part of the call. Uh, so my, I just got a couple of uh, questions. Uh, last year, uh, Chris, we we got to see you know a highly rated youngster like uh, Zwera produce. Some great performances at the Masters 1000. Uh, he won a couple, but uh, but he's still to leave a mark uh, in the slams. He hasn't reached a quarterfinal yet. I was just wondering, and actually, I would have liked to have got uh, Patrick's views as well on this. I know. Uh, how much uh, would the okay. yeah? How much would the lack of uh, best of five events outside the slams and the Davis Cup be a factor? Uh, you think in this? Because until 2007, uh, you know, Masters 1000 finals were uh, contested over best of fives. So, um, so maybe I can leave you to answer that one, and uh, I have another one uh, to follow up uh, if you'd like to go with this one first. All right, now go ahead. What's your follow up? Oh, so, yeah, well, the follow up was uh, on a slightly yeah. Sorry, the follow up was on 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 uh, on uh, on court coaching actually. So uh, you know we've had mixed views on that, and I basically was just would like to get your views on 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 uh, on court coaching. Uh, because of uh, the different views that have yeah. been expressed. I mean, you had Nadal calling it, uh, you know, uh, sort of, he said, you know, it was stupid that you had a coach traveling with you all year, but you couldn't use him in key moments. And Federer, on the other hand, said, uh, you know, not every player has the same resources, so it could be unfair on players who are not able to afford a coach. So basically, those are my two questions. I hope you got them. Yeah. All right. I'll get, I'll, I probably can answer the coaching one better than I can answer the men's tennis one. So I will go from no there. Um, okay. I, um, I am a traditionalist when it comes to uh, coaching. I mean, I always felt like one of the reasons I won so many matches was because I was able to think on the court myself. And I actually think if there was on-court coaching, I probably wouldn't have won as much because <laughs> I think the coaches probably could have told their player how to beat me a lot better and I would have lost a lot more matches. So I'm like, I'm okay. a true believer that you need, it's an individual sport and you can have all the coaching in the world, but once you're on the court and you're competing, that you, you need to think for yourself. On the other hand, you know what? Right now we're trying to grow the sport. And in, in, in terms of growing the sport and in terms of, um, you know, cra- the crowd participation, in terms of bringing more people to watch tennis on TV, I think the co- encore coaching uh, has added an element of, you know, sort of attractiveness. And, and I think people are always curious to know what the coaches are saying. And, and I think it's more drama. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, so I think it's better to bring people in. It's better, you know, for the sport. But so, I mean, I'm kind of split. Like, I'm fine with, you know, good coaches coming out one time a set. I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, I don't think any they need to do it anymore. And they're talking about now, I think, in the men's game, I think they're talking about it, the coach can yell out anything they want. And I don't know. That's, 
I don't know. I'm I'm not a big fan of that. But I, I think the way the WTA has done it with just once a set is fine. Uh, if it, if in fact right. it is helping and growing the game, but but I'm always thinking that you know on the other hand that um, you know the beauty of tennis is a lot of it is mental and you need to sort out your own problems in your own time on the court. Right. Okay. Uh, okay. Go for the other one or. Uh... Oh, I'm that's not, fine. Sorry, yeah, thanks. Thanks for. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really. Yeah, I'm not really familiar. I can't answer that question. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Nobody. That's no worries, I understand. Thank thanks. You. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Okay. All right. Next up is Deepak Raghav from the Hindu, and then we finish up from the ABP newspaper, Kushik Das. Hello. Uh, I have two questions as well. So my first question will be on Serena and like what are the challenges for Serena when she makes a if and when she makes a comeback and how well do you think she can you know, re, uh, play in the same way that she used to and the second question is something that we discussed at the start, uh, start of the discussion about the long schedule so do you think injuries to Djokovic, Mane, Stan and everything are just anomalies or is there a sign of things to come with a long schedule? Okay, well, the first one was about Serena, correct? You're, yes. you're asking about Serena? Was that the first question? Okay. Um, as far as Serena's yeah. concerned, um, I think she can come back as good, if not better, than before. For sure, I think she can. Um, I'm, I'm, I think her decision not to play the Australian Open was a, was a smart one because now she's just going for Grand Slam titles. And I think that she can't. You know, she wasn't ready. She wasn't ready physically. She wasn't ready mentally. She could not. I mean, this is the type of tournament where there's so much talent that Serena could not have played her way into the tournament anymore because she probably would have gotten tough matches the first and second round. So, you know, I don't don't know. I don't think she would have won this tournament anyway. But um, do I think she, yeah, she's got it. I mean, it'll all depend on really the motivation. I think having a child sometimes uh, changes you forever, but whether it's going to change the competitiveness of her, uh, you know, remains to be seen. She can say she's just as competitive as ever, but there's a lot that goes into um, having a child and being a mother. And I mean, it's a 24 hour a day job mentally, emotionally, and physically. And she's never been presented with this situation before. And so it's, it, it remains to be seen how she's going to handle it, but I think physically with her body, she can get herself into fighting shape, and, and she can be playing as well, if not better, than before. So I think that would be, um, you know, I think that's a positive. And I don't remember what the other question was. What was the other question? Uh, so or is that uh, the, the long schedule that we long schedule that we discussed at the start of the call, this, this one, so... Do you think the injuries to you know, Djokovic and Murray and everything, yes, are there like anomalies right. or is that just something that's, that's a sign of things? No, I think, it's, I think it's a wake-up call. Uh, I don't think it's a sign of things to come um, because I think that something might be, something has to be done. But I think it's a wake-up call, you know, for all the players and um, the fact that they have to reevaluate their schedules and reevaluate not only their tournament schedules, but their fitness and their practice schedules and how they prepare for a tournament, how hard they prepare for a tournament, you know, when to take weeks off, when to rest completely, 
it's it's a very demanding sport in that it's almost 11 months of the year now. It's 10 to 11 months. And um, so I think it's a wake-up call, and I think that the change of surfaces and um, just the way the, the – the mechanics of the game, everything has changed and it's just getting much more demanding on the body. And so I think there has to be a little more thought process going on with schedules and whether that's the tournament schedules or the individual player, uh, maybe players shouldn't have to have as shouldn't have to play as many tournaments. I don't, I don't know, but I don't, I think that it, um, and, and the players you're mentioning are all, you know, I mean, even Stan Vavrink, I mean, they're 30 plus and these players are, are, uh, have had years and years of wear and tear on the body. So let it be a wake up call for the younger players and the middle aged players now to, to re- reevaluate everything in their tennis. Thanks. Okay, we will uh, wrap things up here. Appreciate everybody's time, especially you, Chrissy, with Kushik Das from the Indian newspaper ABP. Uh, hi, everybody. Hi. And uh, this question, ma'am, for you. I mean, do you think the lack of rivalry in uh, women's tennis is uh, robbing the shine of the sports? I mean, when you were playing you and uh, Navratilova, then Steffi Graf and maybe Monica Sales, and yeah. uh, now it's uh, only Serena Williams. Do you think it's uh, robbing up the yeah. some, some kind of sheen from the women's tennis? I certainly think rivalries enhance the game of tennis. I think because, you know, you it brings in more fans. You get behind a player playing the other player. You know, both players have their own set of fans and, and it really you get to be you get to really cheer your your player on. I so I, so I definitely think it enhances and I definitely think that it takes away a little bit from the game. But, you know, you've got three great scenarios in tennis that we've seen you've got great rivalries and then when Serena was dominant everyone was saying yeah but isn't isn't it bad for the game she's dominating there aren't any rivalries well no because our tv ratings were the highest when Serena Williams was playing because you know she was a dominant player and she was she went down and hit she's gone down in history as one of the greatest athletes we've ever seen and now you have a third scenario where you have a you have a multitude of players who can win a Grand Slam, which makes it even more, I think, exciting and interesting and intriguing. Like, who is going to win the Grand Slam? Because there's one of 20 to 25 players that can win a Grand Slam. So you've got three great ways to look, you know, to to look at the game of women's tennis right now. And we just happen to be in the third area where there's just so many. It's like a, a guessing game, but it's it's very intriguing. Um, so I think all three scenes setups are uh, a positive for, for women's tennis right now. Okay, thanks. And my last question is, um, uh, where do you rank Serena Williams and uh, Roger Federer in all-time tennis history? Mm-hmm. In all-time what? I'm sorry. Where yeah, do I rank in them in what? As far as the greatest yeah, all-time? Right. Yeah, yeah, all time. Number one. Greatest number of all time. Number one. Number one. Number one. I mean, in tennis? Number one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about the tennis. Yeah, I think you'd have to put them both the greatest of all time, yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, oh, I think oh. just Thanks. the way, you know, Roger's longevity, their, both their longevity and uh, the way they're winning, even at this age in their middle 30s is phenomenal. No one else did. No one else has done that. And, um, you know, there's just tougher players. There's more depth right now. So I think you'd have to put them as both as number one. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you, Chrissy. Thanks, everybody, for your interest. Okay. Uh, a lot of good stuff here about uh, the players today and the sport at large. So I hope everybody can watch uh, starting Sunday night in the States, Monday down under. Chrissy, happy travels. Same. Okay. Thank you so much, Dave. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody.